So welcome to the show. I'm David Speed. I'm Adam Brazier. And this is Creative Rebels. Uh, it's a podcast for creative entrepreneurs. We started our first company, Graffiti Life, in a small garage. Yeah, it wasn't easy. But we built the company up to the stage where now we're regularly working with brands like Disney and Nike. And we've been lucky enough to make art all over the world. On this podcast, we interview successful creators. Their advice will enable you to take action and turn your passion into a career. There's literally been no better time in history to make a career from being creative. So many people are going to tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to tell you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast. Welcome back, Rebels. Hello. Let's talk about risk. Oh, you've, you've really thrown me off there. <laughs> risk. Um, yeah, we've talked about risk before, haven't we? About how, I suppose, how scary it is to take a risk, but mm-hmm. every good thing that's happened in my life has probably come after I've taken a risk. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's always, I think wherever wherever there's risk, there's quite often reward. Ooh. Probably more often than not. That's a nice little soundbite for you. Um, but yeah, I think specifically risk when with people thinking about a creative career, because I think a lot of people would love to go and do something creative, but it's too risky. Yeah. Okay. So I see where you're going with that. Um, we talk a lot in this week's episode about uh, the creative industries. And I mean, the the fact is the creative industries are the fastest growing um, export for the UK. So yeah. um, it's bringing in a shit ton of money into the UK economy. Um, and I know you are listening all around the world. I, I don't think it's a UK specific thing. I think the cre- creative industries are growing across yeah. the planet. I think with the kind of emergence of the internet, with the emergence of things like social media, content is now becoming more and more important. There's so many more ways to consume it, there's so many more places to consume it, which means there's more content that's needed. So generally creativity is what causes that content. So there's just this cycle at the moment of it's just building and building and building where more and more content is needed all the time. And so why it might seem like a risk is because it's not the standard thing that's been done in the past. You're perhaps advised by uh, people that are older than you that this is not a good good career path um, because it, it deviates from the standard that we always grew up with, which is get a job, get a gold watch, graduate, like... Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to being patient and not playing the short-term game. Because if you've just... If you think, okay, short-term, going to do something creative to make money from it, that's a risk. Like, there's... It's going to be hard to make money from it tomorrow or next week or in the first year. It's going to be a building process. But if you develop creative skills, they can be used across your life. Like, whether you're at university, whether you're in a job currently, by starting learning other creative skills that you don't currently have and adapting your skill set. You're way more employable if you want to go and get a job somewhere else or you're, or you're developing the skills to go and start something on your own, which when you start a business, you have to do, you wear all the hats, like literally all the hats. So the more things you can do for yourself, the easier that is. Because at the start, when you start anything, there's not really much money there. So if you think, oh, I want a website, but this person down the street's charging me a grand for a website, but I don't have a spare grand, if you taught yourself how to do that, then you'd have a free website. So it can seem really scary. We totally understand it can seem like like you're doing the crazy thing. And the reason this show is called Creative Rebels is because we know that a lot of you kind of feel that you're the black sheep, that you're the odd one out, that you're the creative one, the, the kooky one. And have confidence in that and realise that that is actually your biggest strength and being creative 
is firstly like you know if you're listening to this that that's what fulfills you that's what you love doing like creativity is what drives you forward so try and find ways where you can be practicing creativity at all times so if you if you love writing then write all the time so if you want to be a writer you have to earn enough money to keep a roof over your head because if you don't have a roof over your head you can't carry on writing as we talk about in this episode Anna was writing for for herself like for a newsletter that she was putting out it that gave her an excuse to be writing because she knew she wasn't always going to be working on commissions because in the beginning there weren't any commissions coming in Um, and so I think it's whatever it is that that does set you on fire find a way to be doing that as much as possible, even if it's not for a client. Um, Firstly, for your sanity and your mental health, because like we know that staying creative is what's going to fulfill you. Um, But secondly, because of the opportunities that will come from you just making the work, it seems like a risk. It seems like you're, you're really going out on a limb. Like I want to, I want to make donuts. Like if we look at previous guests like Vicky, like I want to make donuts that in these mad shapes and letters and all of these sort of different designs, like full on creativity, but like it's worked out Mm. and people might have told her that she was crazy for wanting to do donuts. If you want to dance, if you want to do poetry, like whatever it is, the way the world is heading you've you've got just as much chance of making a success of that as you have of going and being a cog in a system within a big organization that feels safe now but the way the world is changing like there's no guarantee that that is going to be safe i think if you're talented it isn't risky you should just absolutely go for it i think it's if you haven't learned that skill yet is when the risk sets in and that's the time that make it as safe yourself as possible by learning you'll get talented and when you're talented there is no risk Yes, and you guys keep sending us your wins um, and we love it and you're going from strength to strength and like we just believe in you. Um, we believe in our listeners. We believe in the power of creativity. So um, just keep doing what you're doing. You've you've got this 100%. So let's get into the episode. Ah, oh, but before we do... We've got a few events coming up. Yeah, we do. Uh, on the 10th of November 2019, if you are in London... Uh, there's an event where I'm going to be part of the panel. If you go to at Kettleboobs, I'm not even going to explain what that is. You're going to have to go to their Instagram to find out at Kettleboobs and uh, you will be able to see about their boobs and balance event. The second event we've got is on the 13th of November. That's with Alex Manzi at General Assembly again in London. And go to at I am Alex Manzi. Find out more. Anna Codriarado is a freelance journalist and she's written for The Guardian, the BBC, Vice and countless other publications. Anna writes a weekly newsletter which is called The Professional Freelancer and she's also founder of FJ and Co which is basically where freelance writers can go and it's filled with like tools and resources and everything that you need uh, if you are trying to embark on a career as a writer. We talk quite a lot about money in this episode and one of the things that Anna's quite well known for is her Fair Pay for Freelancers campaign, um, which we dive into in the show, but it essentially is what it sounds like. Yeah, it's really changing the industry. Yeah, because there's a lot of stuff that is basically just not right. Um, and it's not just across journalism, it's uh, across all the creative industries. So um, we talk about, yeah, getting paid, knowing your worth and all of that sort of stuff. In this episode, we talk about freelancing, shame and money. Someone out there has money. Someone has the money that you need to do the project that you want to do. It's just about finding, figuring it out, finding them.
show. Thank you for having me. How did your newsletter start? It started um, not necessarily by accident. So I got made redundant in 2017 and I didn't, and it was very much, it was quite a dramatic sort of, I went in on a Friday and they said, don't come back. So by the Monday decided I was going to give freelancing a try and I didn't have any commissions yet, obviously, because I just started yeah. out. So I decided to start writing a newsletter. I already was quite a big newsletter reader and really liked... Um, Dolly Alderton used to write this really amazing newsletter, which she doesn't do anymore. And there was Lenny Letter, which also doesn't exist anymore. Um, and so I was quite a big newsletter reader. So I thought, oh, I'll just give newsletters a try. And I did it really with the idea of... I didn't know what it was what was going to happen and I kind of I didn't want to not have somewhere to write every week because I didn't know what was going to happen with the commissions and whether I was going to get commissioned and how the freelancing was going to pan out. So I thought if I have a slot in my diary to send out this newsletter every week, I know that I've got a space to write. And when it first started, um, it had a different name to what it does now. It covered very different things. It didn't really I didn't really have a plan. I just started writing random thoughts. And it kind of all went from there and a lot of things changed along the way, but it it started basically from a point, a period, a sort of a point of a real low career moment mm -hmm. where I had no job. Had the thought of going freelance been bubbling along in the back of your head or was it literally a snap decision in the moment of the redundancy? It was bubbling in the back of my mind. Right. I actually recently found a little um, notebook that I had bought in the year before I went freelance and I'd titled it Anna's freelancing plan and, um, how I was going to go freelance um and I but I was just always too scared to take the leap I'd I, and I'm so I am such a planner and such a control freak and I had I had all of these plans in place I probably could have just gone and done it but I was mm. just too scared so it was quite I guess it was a snap decision in the sense that I made the decision really quickly literally over that weekend that I'm just going to do this now uh, and not not look for another job and just go into freelancing. But it was all there in the... In fact, not even in the back of my mind, at the very forefront of my mind that I really wanted to be doing. So it. it's another one then. We yeah. we literally need to get a chart on the wall where we literally do those like like the prison dots and then the da uh, the dashes and then the line through it because there's we've had so many guests who have been like, I've been thinking about going freelance, been thinking about like leaving my job and then they got made redundant and that was the leap that they took. Yeah, and it always takes that catalyst to get someone to do something that they actually want to do. So we like a new, we've got a new thing of like voluntary, no. Make your own redundancy make your, package. Make your own redundancy Amazing. package. So you save up enough so you can have the next six months so you can actually then go and do the thing that you would have done if someone else made you redundant tomorrow. The real irony in what happened to me is I, in the end I did get some redundancy money, but I thought I wasn't going to get any for various reasons I won't necessarily go into. But I... I had planned that I would build this cushion because everyone, everything you read, every blog you read about how to go freelance, it says build a financial yeah. cushion. Um, and I kind of was doing it, but I definitely didn't have it in the place that I thought it needed to be in. And when I went, and a lot of people also decide to go freelance because they do have that redundancy cushion. Yeah. When I eventually got mine, first of all, it takes ages to get your redundancy money. Um, when I eventually got mine, it was nowhere near as generous as I could like other people's have been and what it, what it could be to kind of um make that leap so yeah there was this irony in the fact that I didn't even have that financial cushion anyway how much of a cushion like how many months did you have kind of saved up I can't I actually can't remember um 
probably like a couple of months. Yeah, so not not a long time. Not at a all. long time, and also, like I said, you you think oh we were going to get this redundancy package, but in the end, it takes it takes like a good two months to actually see yeah. that money anyway. So. So what what I love then is that you knew you weren't instantly going to be booking hundreds of jobs. So in order to kind of, I guess, keep yourself active, the newsletter was just to to give you something to write. It was to give me something to write. And it was also looking back on it, it was to regain control over something as well. So if I if I look back on on the things that really pushed that made me feel that I didn't want to be working in a traditional job environment a lot of it has to do with feeling like I didn't have ownership over projects and feeling like I didn't have control over my career over my work all of these kinds of things and even at that point right almost pre-freelancing I already realized that yeah freelancing is great but like especially if you're a freelance journalist you're still having to ask permission to do something Mm. Um, you don't just publish stuff on someone else's website without giving you a green light first. Whereas the newsletter is entirely, was entirely my project. And I think a lot of it was also to do with that control, that ownership, that project that is entirely mine. Um, but also from a really practical point of view, like I said, just that place to write every week, um, which also was in response to what had been happening throughout my career, where I'd always been an, I'd been an editor up until that point, and I'd always really just wanted to be a writer and a reporter. And um, I kept applying for internal jobs for that, and I kept not getting them, and I kept thinking I'm not good enough to be a writer. So this was all, this was all, everything I've been doing up until this point has been me basically trying to kind of prove the sort of, prove like them, whoever them is wrong, that I am actually good enough to write and I can, I can do all of this stuff. That's a big driver for me is uh, proving people wrong, even if, yeah, even if you don't know who they are. <laughs> they don't know that you're trying to prove them wrong. Yeah, yeah I guess it's, it's probably just internal, isn't it? It's probably just with yourself. Um, the newsletter has kind of developed into, it's, a, it's an arm of your business now. Mm. Yeah, so uh, at some point I really focused it just on freelancing and what became really apparent, I even actually asked my sort of very early readers, who the majority of whom were friends and mm-hmm. family and former colleagues, what it was about because the, yeah you're starting from zero yeah. so you just go through I guess go through your address book and yeah just so, add people yeah so the very first well so the very first email I sent um I sent it to probably about f- between 50 and 100 people I actually knew and I said I'm starting a newsletter but please you have to opt into it and yeah. I kind of gave them the link to sign up to MailChimp I didn't just add people to a yeah. list and I think a good 30 of them started kind of start signed up from the beginning um, and I kind of bumbled my way through. And then at some point I kind of felt like I don't really know what I'm doing with this newsletter. And I actually asked people for feedback and it was a small enough list and people who knew me well enough to actually give really valuable yeah. feedback. And the thing that came back, the resounding thing that came back was everything you've been writing about your experience as a freelancer is really, really fascinating, really interesting. And that's when I started focusing the newsletter exclusively on freelancing and basically chronicling my journey as a freelancer with the hope that it would help other people and basically be the resource that I didn't have when I was on at the beginning of my journey and also um, when I was thinking about going freelance and all of that kind of stuff and that that just and the minute I kind of pretty much from the sort of the week that I refocused it the growth for the newsletter just started to really take off and it just became a place where it's clear now that the majority of people who are reading it are not my friends I don't know who these I don't know my readers anymore Um, I mean I kind of know them but I don't don't know them personally um, what way have you grown it? 
So it started getting shout outs from other newsletters and uh, most of it's been, yeah, most of it's basically been organic. So it's mm. been getting shout outs from other newsletters, other sort of members of the freelance community recommend it. It gets forwarded to people. Um, I, I kind of hear from uh, fellow journalists who go and speak at universities or whatever, they sort of recommend it as a resource. It just gets kind of gets recommended mainly through word of mouth, be that digital word of mouth or actual yeah. word of mouth. Um, and then also a really interesting thing happened is I switched from MailChimp to Substack, um, which is a different, it's an email, it's a newsletter um, platform, but it's been specifically designed for people who want to send editorial style emails rather than using an email as a marketing tool. MailChimp is really a marketing mm. platform, like it's a marketing tool. And when I switched over to Substack, it's it, it's a lot more shareable. The con the newsletter actually also exists basically almost as also as a in a blog it has a, a proper URL and it's a lot more shareable. Unlike oh, okay. when you use MailChimp, it's actually really hard to access your archive yeah. and it's quite hard to share the link. Whereas Substack is super shareable and people also pretty much every Friday. So I send it out every Friday and um, people just tweet it out. So it's been, it's, I've noticed like a real pickup in the, in the, um, in the readership since I switched over to Substack um, because basically it is, that is a platform that is designed for people who want to write this, like want to write a newsletter that exists as a piece of content in and of itself where the aim is to read the newsletter and stay in your inbox and read the newsletter rather than a marketing tool which it's kind of trying to get you to go and yeah. do something else i don't want anyone i want people to stay and read i don't want them to go anywhere from my yeah. from my newsletter just does, to does read it, it allow someone like say six months down the line to find that piece of content yeah yeah it's yeah, a lot really easier and it's got um it, it essentially it's kind of like a blog and a newsletter almost and it has a much easier it has a searchable archive yeah. a much cleaner archive whereas MailChimp's archive it um it kind of auto deletes or sorts dropping off from the yeah. bottom um which is fair enough I mean if you think about the majority of people who are using MailChimp it's it's businesses and brands I'm yeah. not going to go like, into here's think, a current offer yeah like, you don't need to you know don't need that. to go yeah. back into the archive so and also, I don't, I don't know how um, Substack works, but with MailChimp, once you reach a certain point, it's going to start charging you to, for you to send out your own free newsletter to people. So that is actually how I ended up, A, why I moved to Substack and B, why I turned the newsletter into part of my business, because I hit that point. And and also it, the the fees for Mailchimp start ramping up really quickly. Yeah, they do. So I was already spending, and as the newsletter grew, and it's it really is the, the my the my favorite thing to do. It's the thing I love writing the most. And so as it grew, and I started feeling the pressure of this audience of people who aren't just my friends, I actually started taking it a lot more seriously. I mean, I've always taken it seriously, but even more seriously. Um, so I wanted to dedicate more time to it. And I spend so much of my time talking about how to make a sustainable self-employed business. Well, it's really not very sustainable to spend a good like day and a half doing something and um, it then costing you money on top mm, of it. Yeah. So I had I did a lot of soul searching um, and kind of thinking, you know, what am I going to do? Are there different options? You know, you can um, do sponsored sponsored newsletters, which I did do. Um, it is an option. You can do ads. There's all these things you can do. Um, what Substack offers, it sounds like I'm sponsored by Substack. I'm not. <laughs> um, it's, um, you can, you can, um, offer a paid version of your newsletter, which is what I do. So 
people who pay, they get additional newsletters from me. They also get, um, I also run events and they get access to, to um, some of those events for free as well. So it then basically becomes a membership model where people who pay, they just get more stuff, mm-hmm. basically. Um, and it's it's just a really good way for you to turn a writing project into something sustainable mm. and into something that generates um, like a revenue stream for yeah. you. What percentage of people go for the paid subscription? So um, I think I'm now about 5%. Um, it's hard to, it's a, cause a constant moving target because the free version, this yeah, free yeah, one grows. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I'm about four or 5%, which I'm really happy with because uh, the sort of, the golden goose is to get to 10%. So, you know, you're kind of, you're looking at a 10% conversion. So yeah. if like that, I'm more than happy with, you know, you're, you definitely think the misconception is like, oh, wow, you know, I can, I've got like 5,000 subscribers. I'm, they're all going to, they're not all going to go pay. <laughs> yeah. They're really, they're really yeah. not. And that's absolutely fine. I, I do, um, it's that thing where the, the people who do pay make it, make the whole thing work yeah. basically and interestingly it's also really i think has improved the quality of the free version as well because it just means i it just means that now i know that this is a part of i have the resources to put back into this mm-hmm. and i can just do more with the whole thing and it's um it's not just you know i'm i feel very i'm a freelancer who writes a newsletter about freelancing it's all very meta but there are plenty of other authors and writers on substack and kind of or using other platforms or whatever it might be who are writing newsletters about all sorts of things there's one about the climate crisis or um how to get a um there's one sort of about the kind of like the publishing world and there's one about sort of the ins and outs of like the chinese economy and there's, there's so many things that you can write about and sort of do a paid newsletter yeah and that takes about a day and a half a week to do probably yeah and kind of when it's all said and done i think it's um it gets quite blurry because i also have the events as well that i do so i'm probably spending a good i'm not very good at i don't just say monday i do journalism and tuesday i do my newsletter and stuff like that or whatever i kind of i blur it all in so it's quite hard for me to quantify but i'm probably spending kind of if i think about the events as well i'm probably spending a good like more like two to three days on all of that kind of stuff but the actual writing of the newsletter takes the best part of the day how did the events come about um people reading the newsletter just wanted more basically um and um I've heard you guys talk about something similar with the podcast where you keep hearing the same questions and how can you answer the same question but with the maximum impact of the answer Uh, and for me one of those ways was doing events um so the events I do are super practical and my goal with them is that everyone who comes should be able to leave knowing at least one thing that's going to make their freelance life easier or more lucrative or something. They really need to leave with an actual thing they can action. So it's, they're pretty much always how to panels. So, you know, how to, how to pitch to editors, how to get a book deal, how to manage your finances as a freelancer, all of these types of things. Um, so yeah, it kind of came off the back of just seeing trends in the types of questions I get back with the newsletter because people people reply to me and they ask questions and um, and it was just it was these these same things coming up and I just and it also it's also it was also a large part was also to do with 
trying to just build out the community because that is the one downside of newsletters is they do feel a bit one way mm-hmm. <clears throat> and especially because the space that I work in sort of the freelance space it can be really lonely most freelance journalists are working from their kitchen table at home desperately missing the buzz of the newsroom and missing being around other people yeah. um you know journalists are they are quite sociable people who like to be around others and kind of um get there get that kind of energy I'm actually not one of those types of journalists I do really like being at home (laughs) working on my own but um still it was also partly just to have that community and also uh just to connect offline as well because there's a different there's a different kind of connection you get when you're actually meeting in person to when 100% we love live events don't we Uh, like the Q&A part at the end is just amazing because you can actually like because everyone's everyone has the same problems but it's everyone's problems are slightly different because it's specific to them so we can say like talk to someone on the show and be like they they do this for a job and they've got this problem and this is the answer but like oh, it doesn't really fit for me or it, it could fit for them but they just don't take it in the same way but as soon as you're there like okay well you can do this 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 and this and you can just like brainstorm ideas on the spot when you're with them but obviously like when you're listening to it it's, there's yeah, it's no not back a two way yeah not a two way conversation yeah. yeah yeah i love it when you see something click and they're like oh yeah I never thought of that and you're just like yes it's the best (laughs) yeah it's just it's also just really nice being around other people as well and having that human interaction Mm. especially when you spend days working by yourself so I, I always think of it like playing the sims where everyone's got their little bars for everything and like you've got one of them's a social bar and when it gets to the bottom the people just like ah like help me help me and I think like everyone needs that level of socialness like even if you work on your own every day there needs to be that kind of way to come together and I'm quite like quite a fan of if you work freelance and you're on your own and you like being around other people like get a little community of like three or four like get a small office together or like if your kitchen table is big enough fit fit four of you around it because it's so nice to have people that you can bounce ideas off. And if you are just on your own, I feel like sometimes you can get a bit stuck. Yeah, I mean, there's um, there are various kind of WhatsApp groups and like I now have a Slack group where, you know, people kind of arrange co-working days mm-hmm. where they'll just meet up at the British Library and it'll just be a bunch of freelancers. Not even, wo- they're not working on a project together. They're yeah. just working next to each other. Yeah. Yeah, it's like we did it at a uni. It was like I say, I say we. I didn't go many times, but um, my friends would always get together and go to the, the library to study. And like they, everyone did completely different courses, but it was like just nice to have people around. And a few times that I did go, like my course was more like on a computer and hands on. I did it at home, um, but like it was really really fun when I went. And because you can just like oh, I'm bored of this, let's just have a chat for a bit and like throw M and M's at each other or something stupid. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that's happening with freelancers in WeWork, but hopefully well, not. There's free beer in WeWork, so... So um, you first popped onto my radar with your um, fair pay for freelancers. How, I know, I'm, I'm sure that... I mean, probably did great things for you. You probably popped onto a lot of radars with, with that. Um, what kind of started that for you? So I have this campaign called Fair Pay for Freelancers, and it's all around... <clears throat> trying to get the media to pay its freelancers better and fairer and on time. Um, it was something that I realised very quickly into freelancing that payment and late payment was a massive issue. And now there is this particular quirk within the media industry and journalism where it's not so much that invoices are not being paid on time, it's that you can't actually invoice until the piece you've written has been published. So it's this... Uh, this, this, this months. Yeah, yeah, so there's this thing called payment on publication 
which does what it says on the tin, they will pay you when the piece is published. If you're writing for magazines or if you're writing kind of a bigger investigation or something, or just, you know, there is the news cycle, stuff gets pushed. Journalism is just an inherently very kind of disorganised beast. It it will be because it's news, it's very Mm. reactive. But the way that impacts freelancers is you can get commissioned for something. And this this, has hap- this happens to me all the time. You get commissioned for something and the piece just gets, get, the publication date just kept, keeps getting pushed back. And it will be months until you see any of your fee. So it's not so much that you're invoicing and then not getting the money on time. Because if you're writing a piece on Brexit, then that's going to go out straight away. But if you're writing something on how to bogle in the Bahamas, then that's... I've watched too much Spaced. <laughs> Daisy Steiner is my... But anyway, um, she's, my, she's my benchmark for a journalist. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, like I guess evergreen yeah, co- content, then that will get pushed back. The evergreen content is really where you... And it's it's this real catch-22 because if you're a freelancer, you, you need to be writing pieces that are actually going to get you noticed. And mm. they actually tend to be ones that are not really that tied to the news cycle. They tend to be those kind of more sort of hard to put your finger on kind of cultural conversation points that yes they are obviously newsy but there's not an actual news event tied to it um and those are the pieces that take can take a long time to write and also can get pushed back um or also investigations they take months to produce and um i have learned the hard way that if you do an investigation you need to be asking for something up front sometimes there are there are if you become senior enough we have a good enough relationship with an editor there's always something you can do to find a loophole to work around it but the standard practice is that you get paid on publication so i'd already realized very early on that this was a thing and it was a this was kind of going to be really hard to navigate and um and then i did have a couple of kind of late late pay overdue invoices and it took so much effort and kind of um it just takes so much energy to chase payments. It's, you know, it's, I always knew that going into freelancing, there'd be lots of admin and I'm fine with that. I actually kind of weirdly enjoy it, but it's the amount of, I know, I know, (laughs) the amount of time that I'm spending chasing money that is actually owed to me for something that I've actually done and is out there on the internet and the company is really benefiting from that. I just was quite shocked by, but anyway, then, um, at the beginning of this year, the pool, which is a women's um, website closed and, even though I'd never written for them, um, I've got, I've got some friends who had worked for them. I'd never written for them and was not affected by this personally. Our friend was the editor. Yeah. I was, I was listening to, um, I was listening to that episode. It was a really great episode. So yeah, for background on what happened to the pool, listen to that episode. Um, but in a nutshell, it closed and lots of freelancers were left out of pocket. Um, and that, that to me, was the straw that broke the camel's back. And it also was the point where I kind of had this moment where I was like, oh, when you're a freelancer and you have an overdue invoice, you are a creditor to a large company. And if in the worst case scenario, as what happened to the pool, they go out of business, you won't get your money back. Mm-hmm. And that puts freelancers in, un, un, in an unnecessarily vulnerable position. Uh, and so I started the campaign. Um, I spoke to a bunch of freelancers and I put together this open letter and in it, it calls for, asks for three things from the media bosses, um, an end to payment on publication, a respect of late payment fees, because freelancers are actually entitled to a late payment fee, yeah. but companies just 
ignore this and, and that's a legal that's legal a requirement. legal requirement that's not me making something up that's me asking companies to obey the law that they're yeah. supposed to obey I there's definitely the fear in that as well as like if i give you a late payment fee you just won't employ me again so, so, so i slap on late payment fees all the time now because actually i feel that I was really worried about launching this campaign that, you know, no one would employ me and all this. Actually, what's happened is, from a personal point of view, editors are aware of this and I actually often get people kind of will say, we'll make sure to pay you on time. Yeah, and you're, you're the late payment girl. Yeah. We can't yeah, pay you is, late. Yeah. Which is kind of... That's not good because I don't want some kind of personal <laughs> yeah. like loophole. This needs to change for across the industry. Um, um, but by slapping on those fees, you are helping make yeah. change. But what happens is I've never actually been paid a fee. All that, all that um, happens is it just um, speeds up the process of which I get the fee. Um, but for any freelancers listening, if you are... If you do have an overdue invoice, I highly encourage any freelancers to contact the office of the small business commissioner. His office deals with this issue. Um, they do help freelancers. It's confusing because it says small business, but freelancers are very much included. The service is free. They have a 100% success rate and they've claimed back something like over £5 million in unpaid, wow. invoice, in unpaid invoices. Um, they are like very sensitive to not burning bridges. So they're not going to go in really hard and kind of ruin your professional relationship. They want you to get your money back and then continue to have a professional relationship. If you, I mean, in many cases, by the time you kind of take it, so take it to kind of a third party, you don't want to work for the people anymore, but still um, get the money back. That is. It's nice to outsource it as well, because it takes the, you don't have to go in really angry and be the one that's that's shouting at them saying you owe me money. It's like, that's, that's handed off to someone else. I feel like what you could do is have, if you had like almost like a bit of a union where everyone puts on their invoice, I'm a part of this group. And then anyone who receives that's going to be like, they're going to get your kind of the same kind of level of what you get. So if everyone kind of had this stamp on the bottom of their invoice, they'd be like, fuck, pay this person. Yeah, I think it's, I think we, I, I, th- I think there's a world where that is actually probably going to happen mm. or it's not far off or something. But the reality is there are now so many freelancers. It is a growing industry. It's over 15% of the total UK workforce and that number is on the rise. And also, unlike, uh, I, I really kind of speak obviously for journalists, but <clears throat> there used to be this kind of idea that I'm not going to, talk to other freelancers because that's my that's the competition yeah we're now in a place where because i think a lot of us came to freelancing because of redundancy freelancers are really collaborative with each other and there is more of a collegiate atmosphere and there's more of a friendliness and there's more of a let's we're all in this together um and some kind of collective action is already happening like through mm. this campaign through other campaigns through um various freelancer unions that are trying to form um so yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that there is a world in which that you know there is some kind of uh, power in the yeah. in the numbers of freelancers. I mean, we noticed when we were wet behind the ears and first started our business that we were being led by these big companies who were telling us they were dictating to us these these are the terms that you must obey to, and then it wasn't until someone sort of just gave us a bit of advice and said, you know, once you've painted their wall they can't get a refund. You can't unpaint it. It's been done. Um, You should be charging them before you go in there. That we sort of said, oh yeah. And I I think we're very quick to accept the norm and what we're told, this is the structure, you must obey it. But then, I mean, now we go in and we go, well, it's 
is payment before yeah. and we won't start painting we won't until... start paying and they and they come back and they go oh i'm really sorry but our payment terms are 90 days and we go okay well then you won't get any artists on monday and they always find a way they always there's find always a like way a way that they can get a credit card to pay you separately like there's always a way it's i think it really comes down to the power dynamic though because you're dealing direct with your clients whereas there is kind of a barrier and it's usually a when I'm dealing with a large publishing house, it's me against a large company. Yeah. And so I had this experience where I went to get my nails done, actually still on, by a freelance nail artist, and she asked me for a deposit. And of course I paid it because it's a no-brainer to me yeah. that, yeah, I'm going to pay her a deposit because if I don't show up, that's an hour of her time that I've wasted. Of course I need to pay her a deposit. I, I can't go to an editor and say pay me a deposit for my article because that power dynamic is just completely in their favor whereas in your case you ha- you actually hold the power well we we realized that we were kind of inventing an industry at the time because we were doing something that wasn't really being done at the time so um so we had we had that sort of power on our side but i mean we f- we find it the same way that um obviously because you've been on it you're 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 like really fair with how you pay other people um and it's been the same with us so whenever we deal with other small businesses um we've painted loads of stuff for small businesses and they pay straight away and then as soon as you're working for like some of the biggest brands in the world they they give you this 90 day bullshit and you're just like wow i mean because a small business like cash flow is is so Mm. tremendously hard it's what um it's what's putting cash flow is then I think it's pretty much the number one reason that most small businesses go yes. out of business yeah. Yeah. and it is um, affected by the large companies. And to be quite honest, I just sometimes some some of the companies and the way they deal with freelancers, you think, is this actually part of your is this how you actually manage your cash flow by just trying to delay payment as much as possible? Uh, you kind of can't help but think that some of this is actually quite malicious. It's yeah, insane, well, like, isn't it? I think for like some of the biggest companies who have 90 days, that's because they've got billions or trillions in the bank and like 60 days of interest on top of that is a shit ton of money so it's like it's for them to do that they make an absolute fortune off it whereas we suffer but it does exactly and if you think about the inverse it really adds up if you're a really savvy freelancer who's kind of putting your money for tax into a not that there are that many high interest savings accounts out at the moment but if you are really savvy and you're doing all of this um kind of good savings if you think about all the money that is getting tied up in overdue invoices you are losing out quite a lot of money every year and the time it takes to chase those down yeah i mean that's that that's just a considerable amount of time as soon as we started earning enough money to pay ourselves an actual monthly salary we did it because um it's very stressful not knowing how much is coming in every month but that's kind of the life of the freelancer um what kind of tips and stuff have you got for managing your money, I guess, when, especially when you might be waiting to get paid for a long time from a client? I think the most important thing is, as soon if you don't already have one, you need to start building an emergency fund. I think that's true of anyone, any stage of life. It's particularly important for women to have one. Um, but I think that has to be your absolute priority. And emer- an emergency fund is having a £1,000 in a account that you can access fairly easily and you don't need to be worrying too much about interest or whatever on it that is money for kind of when the shit hits the fan which it does Um, which it does and having that there 
weirdly makes the shit hit the fan less. Um, yeah. the emergencies feel like less of an emergency when you can actually deal with them. There are lots of ways you can actually build up to have that spare grand lying around. Um, like there are all these apps out there which will round up your spending. Yeah. Like, you know, lots of the mobile banking apps do it. There are specialist apps that do it. Um, even if you put three pounds, even if you set up set a standing set up a standing order to put three pounds into a bank account by the end of the year you would have that thousand pounds um so i think that's a really good place to start because that a lot of money a lot most freelancer worry comes down to money in fact i think all of freelancer worry comes down to it in some form or another some of it is real worry and some of it is imagined worry so you want to be in a position where you can actually deal with financial hiccups as they come down the road but also not be worrying about the stuff that isn't actually something that you need to concern yourself with and I think a lot of it also I think a lot of the sort of imagine worry comes from avoiding looking in your bank account and avoiding um, doing all of the really boring financial stuff because it is boring you do have to kind of set up another even if you're not a sole even if you're not a limited company if you, even if you're a sole trader you should have a separate bank account even if it's not it doesn't have to be a proper business account but you need to separate your finances. You need to find a good invoicing system. All of this stuff is boring, but it at least it removes the part of the worry that isn't that is just you just being too scared to look in your bank account. Um, so yeah, I mean I'm gonna talk about money stuff for like till the cows come, <laughs> but I think those are like the really big things is um, have a way to actually pay for things if things do go wrong, and um, and just like find a, it's kind of like exercise like there's no point trying to do exercise that you don't enjoy find a find some way to tolerate doing your money stuff i think a really good way to save and like i read it in a book probably about six months ago and i've been doing it ever since is a kind of a thing called like pay yourself first so as soon as your wage comes in or whatever piece of money comes in take like a percentage of that i think the book said 16 percent put that in like some kind of savings account and then because people live to their means so if you've then got the rest of it to pay so pay that before you've even got your rent like pay that first and then then pay your rent and then you've got your chunk left over and it's like if you haven't got enough to pay your rent you'll find a way to pay your rent like you always do but if you leave a saving to the end of the month there's not going to be anything left because you'll just rinse it it's um it's really funny you talk about the pay yourself first method because i i was writing um the members post for today's newsletter and it is a big financial it's like a, i'm writing this four-part financial guide to deal yeah. with your freelancer finances and i was writing about the that method in it um today because it's typically used for sort of personal finance but i yeah. think it's it's a really good way um for freelancers to deal with their tax money yes so when you're thinking in that paying yourself first you should also be pay yourself first and the tax man um, and put that money for your tax aside straight away because you will spend it otherwise yeah. and it's not your money it's money you need to pay back and it is especially when you first go freelance and you learn about this payment on account business where you basically the first the first year you go freelance you basically will have your largest tax bill because you're kind of paying in advance and you will get a really big shock when you have to pay that tax bill. Um, and so finding some way to save for tax, which is, again, it's the, it's one of the most unappealing 
things you have to save for. Because yeah. at least when you're saving for a house or for a holiday or for whatever it might be, it's fun. This is not fun saving. But, <laughs> <laughs> saving for someone else. Yeah. yeah. There's, this, there's another good thing I heard as well. It was kind of like a, I don't do it, but it's like a 33, 33, 33 or 34. And you put like a third into your tax. This is more of a, on a business side of things. So you're third into your tax, a third into growing your business, and then the other third is for you. And I think that's quite a nice way to do it for a business side of things. Because at least you're not with your third you live within that third. You make sure your rent and your life can involve in there. You don't go and spend a ridiculous amount on a flat that you can't actually afford because it doesn't fit into that. I think so. Much, there are so many great budgeting techniques out there and so many great kind of personal finance methods. And I think it's so much about finding the one that really fits you. Yeah. But I think the step that you need to do before that is figure out the role that money plays in your life. And I have this theory that everyone has a money shame they have something about money that just like they feel kind of gets them really emotional um they kind of it's like a shame basically something they feel really shameful about and um you need to like get really real with that and kind of uncover that and get very comfortable about could you give us an example of what a money shame might be um so like your parents like helping you financially or your partner right. helping you financially or you growing up with loads of money or without loads of money. Yeah. Um, something about like how the role money has played in your life, probably right back to your childhood and how that has informed your relationship with money. Um, and I think so much of people's issues that like, come from that something along those lines or something like that um you can do this kind of it sounds really cheesy but you can like write your sort of money story where you go back to sort of the your first memory of of like what money was like it might be like your parents gave you a i my mum gave me this like um uh this or i don't know what i don't know how we got it but it was this like this furry blue barclays piggy bank thing and I think the idea was to like get young, get kids to like save, save or yeah. something. And he also had a pound. I can't really remember, but like I have this memory of this like furry blue money, um, like piggy bank thing. Um, and so from an early age, it was always taught about saving and stuff yeah. like that. Um, and, you know, you kind of basically you write your money story and sort of all of the points that month, all of the points that you remember money being being in your life and kind of like what the feelings were around that and sort of what impact that has and just getting really real about how you view money mm. um, because money money means lots of different things to lots of different people and I think like that's something that you should really work on first and then from there everything actually kind of becomes a little bit easier because there are like there are so many ways that you can be really good with money and actually the nuts and bolts of it is actually not that hard but it's so emotional yeah. and figuring out like why is it emotional for you in particular I think that's really important because we're never taught about money we only learn it from whoever we grow up with who also wasn't taught about it and so I suppose that's where we develop these problems i guess yeah and like personal finance is you get sent off you go to uni and everyone got the natwest student account because it gave you the biggest overdraft and you get in the overdraft in your freshers week and you start your life in debt yeah. basically yeah and then um, people live the rest of their 20s still paying that off yeah. and yeah. credit card debt and store cards and it's years after leaving uni so i got my overdraft yeah. like years yeah. and like unless in, I was never taught this stuff at school. I am just so blessed that I have a mum who is so kind of like really taught me so much financial stuff and is so savvy and kind of like very um, 
and also like really drilled into me the importance of being a sort of financially independent as a woman as well. Um, but like without that, like I'm not, why would I have learned this stuff? It's really interesting as well. I like, I care very little about money. And so, um, so Adam's been investing recently and he's recommended this book to me on investing. I haven't bothered reading it and I, I know I should be doing it for my future, but I just can't be bothered. Like there's the, the hassle involved in learning about investing I'd rather just not have the money than but learn that is, about investing. The, so there is, I, I have this whole theory about, because there's this kind of new wave of investing now where there are all these apps make it easier and all, all this stuff, which I think is really, really good because there is this massive barrier to investing and it keeps out, it keeps people out basically, where it, and investing is, is really good for your financial mm. freedom and like your financial future. And... I kind of think that actually if you learn about investing, if you kind of get into investing, you're kind of almost doing a bit of a, like you're sticking the middle finger up to, to people who don't want to keep, who want to keep you out of that world. Yeah. Um, it's, again, it's like, this is really particularly true for women. You know, women kind of are, the language around money and women is women need to save by not shopping. Men need to save by investing. Yeah. Um, my girlfriend went to a talk recently all around kind of female investment because it is a very male thing. Like, I don't know any women who invest because, yeah, women save in a bank account, whereas men will invest. And then it's it's a really weird one because obviously then, like, years down the line, the men will have so much more money. It's like a really weird society. And then that feeds into the, the whole power loop. Yeah. yeah. Um, I wonder if the, was the event um, Vestpod? It was an angel. Um, I think Emma Gannon might have been one of the people hosting yeah. it. There's a great community called Vestpod, um, and it's all about um, financial empowerment for women. It's sponsored by NatWest, I know that. Oh, okay, yeah, NatWest have been doing loads of stuff for, um, around this issue as well. So, yeah, it's 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 really it's particular. This is a it's a feminist issue that kind of getting women to be financially because women free. spend will spend a lot more on products, won't they? So, um, so like razors, yeah. that, like a, a Mac Three is exactly the same as a Venus, but a Venus has got like. 10, 10 quid more on it yeah which yeah. is a problem yeah no women are getting screwed left right and centre basically so it's um, it's actually really great that there's been a recent shift in the money conversation and actually going around saying you're a woman who likes money is now something really empowering um, and I think that's actually it's brilliant because the reality is money gives you options and women need options so I think it's the sort of Marie Folio book that we've just read. Um, like she was saying, like, never let your finances rely with a man because it's like as soon as you get divorced or something and you haven't built anything for yourself, you're just left. And it's like, now what do I do? I'm 40 and have nothing. It's awful. Yeah, I mean, the, um, there was this brilliant viral article which essentially talked about the need for an emergency fund, but it called it a fuck-off fund. And it was specifically written about... Um, women who may find themselves in an abusive relationship or just in some kind of toxic yeah. relationship that they need Trapped. to get out of. And they need that, They, you know, you need to have the money so you could literally walk out of the door with just a backpack and you could afford to go and stay in a hotel or you can, you will be fine if you left a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's a, that's a whole, whole other <laughs> thing, but... <laughs> What then are some of the revenue streams that freelancers might be neglecting? Because I think what you're really good at is you've got multiple different streams. And what are the things that some people should maybe look at if they're a freelancer? The ones that are 
really obvious and that don't require you to actually retrain. So if I think about journalists or writers or basically anyone in the communicating space that is public speaking and and um, talking at events, not necessarily running your own events, but chairing other people's events, uh, because corporate events can be super lucrative and often doesn't actually require you to do anything that you don't already know how to do. Sure, talking in front of people might be really daunting, but actually there are plenty of people out there who are actually really comfortable with it. And um, there's a whole world of, of getting on the event circuit that can be really, really lucrative. Yeah, And if you're not confident, then listen to our episode with Viv Grosskop because she will tell you how to own the room. Um, but yeah, I think that's a really key one. I mean, I think I think also any like self-made revenue streams. So like what I did with the newsletter, there are ways that you can monetize your projects. Um, I have this friend and pretty much mentor called Harriet Minter, who's a fellow journalist. She always says that someone out there has money. Someone has the money that you need to do the project that you want to do. It's just about finding, figuring it out, finding them. Um, but, um, yeah, also like brand partnerships and kind of sponsored content. That is, it sounds like a really dirty word, but the reality is brands have money and they want to work with creatives. And there is very much a way to do it that doesn't involve you selling your soul. Like I, I really don't believe that if you do any commercial work, you're a sellout. Yeah, no, um, we've built a business on doing brand partnerships. Yeah. I mean, you know, my landlord doesn't accept my kind of, purism <laughs> in lieu of rent so um there are definitely ways to exist within our kind of capitalist structure and and we need to get over the shame of yeah. of charging for our work like it's valid to charge for if you're creating something get paid for it yeah exactly um there are ways for you to uphold your ethics your morals your values whilst also getting a paycheck like that's that's definitely possible um i think that kind of also really ties into all of this stuff around revenue streams as well is just accepting that you're not going to be a sellout because that also then helps you kind of think about re even think about revenue streams I, I say the word revenue streams people are people's eyes glaze over um and this whole sorry i was all i was going to say is that i find this kind of the whole conversation around side hustles really kind of funny because all side hustles are revenue streams but it's just a sexier word so yeah. Yeah. On your first point about if you like use the skills you have to do other jobs, I think a really kind of like practical way to do that would be if you wrote down all of your skills, gave it to someone else and say, what job could this person do? Because I think looking at it from someone else's point of view, you could be like, oh, well, if you do those, you could do this. If you do those, you could do that. So I think that's everything that everyone should do. So yeah. that's great. And you can also, another way, I was, I was actually, I, did a very similar exercise with um, a group of young creatives um, at the Roundhouse recently where I got them to write down their skills and ask themselves, how can I do this skill for someone else? How could I like, teach this skill? Or, you know, how can I do this for someone else? How can I sell this skill? And that just gets you thinking about things in a different way. And that kind of, that basically is, once you've answered that question, you have a revenue stream. Yeah. 
it comes back to that thing of what we were talking about earlier of just accepting what the norm is. So going, oh, I'm a journalist, so that means that I write articles and just thinking a little bit deeper into well, there's a, like a million other things that I could do. I could I could run a podcast, I could do, do events, et cetera, et cetera. I think this is the same in jobs, not just being in the freelance world as well. Like if you want to move careers, think, well, what are my skills and what how could that apply to something else? And then be able to like write a CV with these other things saying like, well, these are all the skills I need for this job and these are all the things I've done for, but done before. Just because it's not in this industry or anything similar, like you could do that there as well. I think there's this um, idea also that if you have a job, you know, that's it, that, you know, that's your salary, you don't have to worry about anything else. But I think having multiple revenue streams is important for anyone, no matter what their job position is, whether they're freelance or whether they're in, in, a, in a staff in a staff role um is it warren i mean warren buffett like talks about the importance of um multiple streams of revenue and um, he's doing pretty pretty (laughs) so um like you don't you shouldn't just rely and also particularly as you i often hear from people who kind of say oh i've got a mortgage i've got a family and all these commitments then the more commitments you have the more secure you need to make yourself and actually not relying just on one sole source of income from your job um is probably quite smart is you know to kind of diversify that portfolio yeah. it means if some shit does happen at least there's something to support you rather than going from 100 to zero yeah it's like us with multiple businesses mm. it's if if one of our businesses tanks then we can re-divert that time into one of the other businesses um it's like we always say if if graffiti life fails then we just would put all of our efforts into parlor as her tea studio and just and grow that um, so yeah, it's it's the same thing, isn't it? Mm. But just on a bigger scale. Yeah, because reality is we do live in uncertain times, which is such a cliche, but it is true. true. Um, there is no job for life. Job security is a myth. So relying just on one paycheck is is really not smart. Yeah. I think as well, if you don't feel like you don't have skills to go and learn something else, learn something else. Like spend your time learning a craft that you don't currently have because then at least that gives you the potential to do something. Well, that's the thing that where people are saying about automation and it's going to, and all, all these poor taxi drivers that are going to be out of a job when automation is, and I'm empathetic to that, but there is nothing to stop them from learning new skills. We all have the capacity to learn something new and change career at any point in our life. My podcast co-host, Tiffany Philippou, has a really um, brilliant view about automation where she really hopes that maybe the robots will just come and take our work away so we can just do work, less work. Yeah, well, that's the <laughs> like, goal, isn't it? Yeah. Is, is creativity will take over because everything that is a boring, like just a like factory line job will just be done automated. I think that, I think she might be onto something. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, we, we went to a talk about this recently together and she said this question and everyone kind of laughed and we were kind of like, but... No, we should. Why do we want these robots to come and take away our jobs and then us have to do more work? No, we should just be having more leisure time. And why, yeah. why can't the goal be have more leisure time? I think, like, on the flips, like my argument to that would be the automation is going to come in by the companies and that's going to save them money, so they're going to make more money. So it's not like everyone's going to just earn the same but only have to work half the amount of time. But I think what will be good for automation is it's like when the Industrial Revolution happened, at that point, everyone was working in a farm, like dragging things around. And it then allowed you to go, like, it's not like as soon as factories came, all the jobs went. Mm. People just found new things to do. So I think in our society going forward, 
if machines take, well, when machines take over most of the jobs, people are going to have more time to do other things. So new kinds of jobs create, will be created that we don't even know now. And I think a lot more will will go into creativity and the way that kind of social media and the internet's going, people want content all the time. And I think there's going to be so many people who are just going to be content creators in the future. That's all they're going to be because robots will do everything else, but they can't create content, whereas we can. So I think, yeah, learn to do something creative because at least when that does happen, you've got a job in the future. Yeah, the smartest career path you can take, creativity. There you go. I read an article of yours um, about creativity hacks. Do you believe that creativity can be hacked? The short answer is no, but read the article. I think (laughs) there's definitely a question in the title, so it's definitely a no. Yes, it's true. Yeah, there you go. Yes, the the question of uh, the headline was, can creativity be hacked? Um, And yeah, the short answer is no. But, and I say that as someone who, I love the Pomodoro technique, which for anyone who doesn't know, it's when you set a timer for 25 minutes and you work on a particular task for 25 minutes, you take a five minute break and you repeat that four times and you can take a longer break. Um, I also love calendar blocking. I have a bullet journal. I do all of the stuff, but I do that because... I know what I'm trying to do. And it's not because I'm trying to chase productivity and creativity as this sort of elusive end point. It's me trying to make space to be creative and to be productive and to actually focus on the things that need to be focused on. Um, There are lots of people out there who will buy a bullet journal because everyone else has got a bullet journal Mm -hmm. and then be amazed that it's not producing some magical creative eureka moment or this this amazing guy that I interviewed for the piece who said that he felt really really under pressure in his job to be creative on demand so he read somewhere that if you get increased blood flow to the brain it will help you be creative so he would lie off the side of his couch to try like upside down to try and get more blood flow to the brain but obviously what it did was give him a headache and there were no creative ideas um and Yeah, the thing I found really interesting is that, you know, as I was researching the piece, most of the wisdom around creativity and where a lot of the hacks come from, some professional talker has researched a famous person who did something really creative and sort of retroactively fitted a blueprint and a model and then tries to sell that as a technique. And it will be like, oh, uh, Einstein wore thinking hats or... um, I don't know. And went to sleep with a with a metal ball and a bowl. So when the metal ball dropped after five minutes, that would wake him up. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, this all this. <laughs> you then trying to replicate that isn't going to work for you. And I think it all comes back to sort of, you know, creativity. Really, all it is is problem solving. Like it's it's problem solving, yeah. and it's 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 given this status and it's treated as a currency in our kind of capitalist world when really it is just problem solving and unless you have a problem to solve there's no yeah creativity when you've to got be had. too many problems to solve that's when you need to get your bullet journal and start organizing exactly yeah it, it, by organizing nothing that's not going to make things happen exactly um so yeah just doing the hacks just for the sake of them or just to, like i said to just to be creative for creative's creativity's sake is is just a recipe for disaster. And I think there is also a side point to all of this, which is 
you know, why are we under so much pressure to be creative? Why are we trying to fit more? The robots are coming. Exactly, the robots are coming. Why are we trying to fit more in? Because productivity is just doing more with less. So a really great way to be more productive is take stuff off your plate. Um, but we don't do that. We just try to cram more things into less time. Um, so, I mean, I'm also guilty of that. I do need to start saying no to more things. But um, no, I think creativity hacks are bullshit. Amazing. So looking at events, you obviously had your newsletter, so you knew that at least some people were going to turn up to them. How should we start? Because, I mean, this is a bit of a selfish question, really, because we've been thinking about doing events. We've done a bunch, but under the security blanket of them being like Apple or Adobe or whatever, and it's like we're a bit scared to like just go, oh, this is a Creative Rebels event. Like where where would you start? And especially where would you start if you had no audience? Would you build the audience first before you put the event on? You have to build the audience because the point of an event is the audience has to have, there has to be value to the audience. There's a book called The Art of the Gathering, which picks apart um, good events and kind of how to host an event. It's a really good read. And it talks about how we sort of lost our way and why are we even doing events and it kind of talks about weddings and parties and it's a really good example about you know you need to uh, with a wedding you actually need to think about the guests it's not it's not the bride and groom show it's for the guests to like enjoy and be part of your big celebration and your love Mm. and all of that stuff but you go to lots of weddings where it's just it's the bride and groom show and you the guest like it's not a comfortable experience for you um and it's this you know it's the same principle with any event it starts with what is the value that's going to going to be um brought to the participant like why 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 would i come to the event you know what what is it that i'm going to get out of it and i think that's why i um went down this very practical route of sort of offering really practical um panels because and also a very practical suggestion is you can ask your audience what they want. I did some, I did a survey at some point where I asked people what they wanted from events. And the big thing that came back was networking and um, like business skills. So I think lots of companies will put on events that they think sound really interesting or they're really yeah. interested in, but it needs to be about the audience and like why would they come? What would they get out of it? What did, what are what are the gaps in their knowledge that they're looking to fill? What's something that you can provide them where they'll leave and they'll really will have learned something that they can't get somewhere else? Um, also, I think it's, it is really good to ask the ask your audience because you you can often be surprised by um, like what they actually want and like their motivation for coming to events. Um, but I think I think you do have to build some some audience. It doesn't have to be a big one. Like people. You, kind of you hear this advice of build an audience and you think oh god I'm going to have to make a mailing list of like 100,000 people you really don't how many people came to your first event um my very first event actually um was one of my best events about 100 people turned up and it was a panel on how to pitch to editors and it's because that's that is the bread and butter of any freelance journalists um business that they need to know how to pitch to editors so um yeah I think I sold about 100 tickets for that one um and I also did and before that I actually did an event um with another journalist called Rosalind Warren which was just a meetup for female freelance journalists 
and we had about seven, 70 people show up and that was that was basically women who work in the media who just want to connect with other women who want to do um what I kind of call um horizontal networking rather than vertical yeah. networking so where you're just meeting your peers rather than trying to go to, to ne- get something. trying to get something yeah. trying to get a job trying to get a commission that's really interesting um so but yeah you guys should definitely do events and it will be fine and also you can you can do quite you can do them in a so you can still do them in quite a controlled sort of soft way where if um if you find a venue and you don't have massive overheads it's not going to be it's not going to be a disaster i don't know events i guess events i still always have every time i do an event i saying that every time i do an event I always get that like pre-party nerves no where one I, no, one's gonna, no, one, no one's gonna come to my party um but they do and it's fine and they get loads out loads out of it so yeah. I think that's the thing we know that if we did an event people would go away with a lot because whenever we do talks and we're at other people's events people leave with a lot so I think it will be great yeah and a lot of our listeners are, have subscribed because they've found us at an event yeah. first so yeah we love these guys. We know they'll come. You'll come, won't you? Say <laughs> so you will. Your podcast is one of my favourite podcasts. Thank as we've already discussed off mic, I think it's absolutely brilliant and everyone should go and subscribe to Is This Working? Is This Working? Is you, this can working? Say, you can say it a number of different ways. <laughs> I, I think I'm the proudest of the title. The title <laughs> is great. Is This Working? And you launched it on the day that an article came out and I've read that article that um because because i mean we when that article came out we were probably like a couple of months in and it was um that that podcasts Have are we at, reached peak podcast. yeah we've reached peak podcast how did you feel when you were when you read that on launch day i must say it did so tiffany and i that my um co-host we did kind of have a bit of a panic where we were actually no i had the panic tiffany never panics um i was kind of like oh god the new york times have written an article that says podcasts suck um (laughs) no one's gonna listen to our podcast and then obviously that's not the case um i don't know that article i think it was really interesting but i think it actually kind of conflated two issues because well first of all there's this kind of tourism and journalism where any headline that has a question in it the answer is always no um and um this question of have we reached peak podcast that's like saying have we reached peak radio have we reached peak film have we reached peak article no there's just a lot of content out there you just have to be good Mm -hmm. if your podcast is good it will get listened to if your podcast is not good it won't like it's, it's it's so true like it's there are so many thousands that and they're just really bad and I, I, I'm a member of like a few um, podcast groups and I see like everyone on there is like, how do I get more listeners? How do I get more listeners? It's like, be really good. Then people will share it yeah. with their friends. That's, that's literally that's it. Make that, content good enough that someone will tell someone else about. I mean, so uh, Tiffany's always saying this to, um, like to me basically, uh, where she's kind of, she'll say, you know, if we, she's like, when we ever get feedback, when someone says that your podcast is too long, what they're saying is your podcast is too boring. So, um, her dad says our podcast is too long and, um, maybe he's not our core audience, but (laughs) for him it's boring. And so we kind of, we take that on and it's, you know, there are all of these strategies for growth with podcasts, but the reality is it's like anything, any other piece of content, any book, any film, anything, if it's good, it will just rise to the top. Yes, there are some things you need to sort of be aware of on algorithms and whatever, but fundamentally, if it is good, it will be fine. Um, there was another thing, there was a piece in that, um, 
in that New York Times article where it was, it touched on this idea about, oh, I can launch this, I can launch a podcast and then suddenly all the sponsorship money is going to roll in as though it's kind of like hundreds of thousands of pounds and I'm going to sort of like float off on my... um, yeah, they, with my wagon of riches. They did the example of the they were like following two millennials as they started their podcast, and um, their goal was after and they gave up after six episodes, and because no one was listening, so they couldn't get any sponsors. It's I think that is a lot more that I'm really interested in this. And we we talked about this in one of the episodes around success. Kind of why do we think that we can just in, do something and instantly it's going to be yeah. some fly like runaway success? It's not the reason that. And even if you even if you do have someone who seems to have come out of nowhere and been really successful, they haven't come out of nowhere. They have been working in obscurity for the last ten, years, fifteen, yeah. twenty years, and the reason their thing is good now is because they've done all of that work up until that point. So this kind of idea that I guess we just look on Instagram at people and think like, oh, I could do that. I could be a podcaster. I could be an influencer. I could be a writer. I could be a whatever. And then you try it and it doesn't work. And then, yeah, then we somehow end up with these articles about peak being a peak podcast. <laughs> it's it's kind of as a conflation of quite a lot of different things, I think. Um, but yeah, it did. It, I must say it did put a bit of a dampener on the launch <laughs> week to kind of where every, the thing that everyone's talking about with podcasts is that there are too many of them. One thing Tiffany always talks about and we talk about it a lot is a start with why. So what's the why of your podcast? Uh, to make work better. See, yeah. and if you can nail it in that short sentence, then it means you're on tour with um, Luckily, I mean, I was in good practice because we were just having our um, meeting yesterday for season two. And most of that meeting was spent in, you know, with what is the why? And I think we already knew that. We knew what the why was before we started, but we just we just really wanted to actually kind of nail it down. But yeah, it's um, that is the most important thing I've learned on my freelance journey. Um, and it is from Tiffany and it is about your purpose and your why and why are you doing things? And I think it's even more important for people who, I always knew I wanted to be a journalist. So I I realized that when I was at university, but I never stopped to ask myself why I want to be a journalist and what it is about journalism that I am drawn to and um, kind of why basically. Um, And I think it's really important for everyone to figure that out, be it on an individual project or be it, you know, with life. (laughs) Um, But I think I think that's just the best starting point for any creative project. I think most people don't know what they want, like most people. And then when they figure out what they want, they don't know why they want it. And I think once you nail those two, then you can just attack life because you've got a game plan because you know what you want and you know why you want it. Yeah, it's the secret to life, basically. Yeah. We have just <laughs> nailed it. Guys, guys. <laughs> Amazing. When um, does season two come out? Mid-November. We haven't got a firm launch date, but it's going to be mid-November. And why did you choose to do seasons? For your mental health? Um, Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Um, We both have a lot on our plates and um, I felt that doing it in seasons would give us natural breaks, basically. So um, that being said, the break we're taking is not very long, (laughs) but it just gives us a way to kind of build in breaks uh, rather than having to kind of announce that we're going off air and sort of um, uh, uh, and not be able to step away from the from the mics um, I also I don't know I think also because especially for season two we're going to come back and we're going to try and be a lot more not newsy but sort of try and tackle things that are really in the zeitgeist so I think we wanted it to be a bit more um, 
self-contained, I suppose. Yeah. Amazing. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Where can people find you online? Um, I am at Anna Cod everywhere. Anna with two N's and then COD. Um, and everything that you need to find about me is there. I'm also the only Anna Codrado in the whole world. So I've got great SEO. <laughs> <laughs> and the podcast is, um, is this working? And we are on all of the places where podcasts exist. Amazing. So Thank you. Thank you so much. That was so fun. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We're trying to help a lot of people with this show. So we need your help to grow the community and spread our message. If you know someone who'd benefit from hearing what we talked about today, or they just need a little nudge in the right direction, pass this podcast on to them. If you want to hear more, then subscribe to us on iTunes. And if we helped you with anything, we'll really love you forever if you can leave us an iTunes review. It makes a huge difference. See ya.